it's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Now, from the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. It is Friday, November 18th, 2022. Happy Friday and welcome to the Guy Benson Show. I'm your host, Guy Benson. So glad to have you here every weekday between 3 and 6 p.m. Eastern Time. Then around the clock when the show is over for free, on demand on our podcast, GuyBensonShow.com, our online home. You can also get the podcast at FoxNewsPodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm the political editor at TownHall.com. I'm a Fox News contributor. I'll be on the panel this weekend, Fox News Sunday, anchored by Shannon Bream. Check your local listings for that. Plus, it will replay later in the day on Fox News Channel. That's on Sunday, of course. Many ways to listen to listen here live as we air. Those options are at GuyBensonShow.com, all over the place. The live stream, the app, Fox Nation, our partners at Odyssey.com, A-U-D-A-C-Y.com, our great affiliates all across the country. You have many options. On the show today, it's actually a pretty light show when it comes to guests but not light on content. The guests in the next hour are Kim Strassel, kicking off our middle hour, and then kicking off our final hour, Chad Pergram, our man on Capitol Hill, where there's now some new interesting drama moving past the elections, looking ahead to the next Congress, some leadership battles and changes that we'll talk about here in just a moment. But we will get one of these historical perspectives from Chad, who really knows his congressional history perhaps better than anyone else. So Strassel and Pergram coming up on the show today. Now, we had a guest host here the last couple of days. It's funny. You plan a trip to just miss two shows more than a week after an election. And you're like, oh, things will probably have settled down by then. (laughs) Well, I did Monday and Tuesday shows from London and our London bureau over in the UK, and there was lots of breaking news, and we kept you up to date on all on all of it. And then we had uh, the guest host here, the last two shows, and while I was away from the microphone, only for two episodes of this program, so much has happened. All right, Donald Trump announced he's running for president. The House was officially called for the Republicans. Nancy Pelosi is stepping down from leadership. Mitch McConnell kept his leadership position on the Republican side. There's questions about whether Kevin McCarthy has the votes to be speaker based on comments being made. I mean, just a swirl of political news over these last couple of days. And now that I'm back, settling in behind this microphone again, even as we're heading toward the weekend, I figured I would spend some time on today's show sort of walking through a number of those events and giving you my analysis of what happened and what's coming. So let's just start with the one that we all, I think certainly by early next week, understood was coming. And and we told you here that even though it wasn't officially called, it was imminent that the House of Representatives would in fact be declared for the Republicans. That did happen. 
finally officially. I think it took them a little bit too long to finally call it. In fact, there's an update here within the last hour or so. That district in Colorado, Lauren Boebert's seat, that district had been drawn to be even more Republican than it used to be. And she came within a whisker of losing it. A couple hundred votes. In fact, it was eligible for an automatic recount. I guess the Democrat decided they weren't going to make up the difference in their campaign. So he called up Boebert and conceded. So that race is now over. I think officially that's now 219 for the Republicans. Just as a quick aside, Boebert has been sort of an an outspoken, hardcore type of person and has pulled some stunts and was heckling Joe Biden during a State of the Union, if you remember that. Even in that district in Colorado, Colorado is a bluing state. That should be a fairly solid Republican district. Obviously, the voters have sent a signal that they expect something different out of her because she came awfully close to losing in a year that was supposed to at least be theoretically based on all the indicators a pretty good year for the republicans i think that's a warning shot for her maybe she can think about adjusting her approach a little bit but we won't get too far into the granular details of her particular seat the point is that is a republican hold which was very nerve-wracking for a while, where the Democrat was ahead, then she pulled back ahead very late with the counting of ballots and then fended off his final gasp at a comeback. So that would be seat 219. There are still four seats uncalled. Decent chance that one or two of them, maybe more, go to the Republicans. But as I kind of ballparked a few days ago, it was a pretty safe bet that the Republicans would end up somewhere in the 220-221 range. Maybe 222, but right in that little tight window, which is an extremely narrow majority. It is effectively, if not exactly, the mirror image of what the current breakdown of the House is, just with the parties reversed, where Republicans outperformed expectations in the House in 2020, When Joe Biden won, people expected the Democrats and Pelosi, they would rack up more seats in the House and have a bigger majority. That's not what happened. The Republicans won double-digit seats during that election cycle, even though at the top of the ticket, Trump lost. So they had that higher floor than expected going into 22. Nevertheless, they were expected by many of us, including myself, to have at least something of a wave year. And instead, there was a ripple or a little splash of a puddle of red and that results in democrats gaining net net two governorships status quo in the senate and maybe gaining a seat on the democratic side but a very thin democratic-led senate with no republican pickups unless herschel walker pulls it off in early december which would only bring things back to 50 50 in a tiebreaker For the vice president. And then the House, yes, has gone Republican, but just barely. Which creates a number of interesting challenges, I would say, for the Republicans. It's much easier for the Democrats, it's much easier in general, to be in the minority. Not because it's fun, especially in the House, you have very few privileges and rights in the minority to affect almost anything. It's a majority rules body. And if you have discipline, if the majority party has discipline, they can just jam through whatever they want. Now, the Democrats usually have more discipline than the Republicans do, sometimes a lot more discipline. Some of that is thanks to 
soon-to-be former Speaker Pelosi. We'll get to her here a little bit later on in the hour. But on the Republican side, already you're starting to see little bits and pieces of dysfunction. And when you have, let's say, a 20-, 30-seat majority, you have some breathing room for dysfunction. Some people in the Freedom Caucus or whatever can say, we're not going along with this. A few moderates can say, ooh, back home, this won't play well. I'm going to vote for the Democratic proposal. I'm going to vote no on this thing or whatever it might be. Leadership might have some wiggle room to lose a couple of votes. When it's this close, there's almost no breathing room at all. And the fact that you have multiple members of the Republican caucus moving forward into the next Congress saying they are not going to vote, for example, for Kevin McCarthy for speaker. It's like, well, it's really, really, really tight. There's a few different ways this could play out, and maybe we'll ask Chad Pergram about it, but the fact that the guy who was widely seen as obviously the next speaker of the House might be spending the next few weeks trying to make sure he can somehow get to 218 or maybe convince some people to vote present and change the denominator so he needs a couple fewer votes than 218 to get into the speakership. I mean, it could be a bit of a battle for him just to get there. And that's before we get into you know spending bills and any of the types of things where there could be substantive problems, where Freedom Caucus people say, we're not going for this at all, or we're going to tank this bill if we don't get this other thing over here. So I think it is going to be... A very rough-and-tumble experience, the Republican majority, that in some ways might feel kind of like a majority in name only, where they're not actually a governing majority able to pass things, which would be frustrating, especially compared to how the Democrats are just so ruthless and efficient and ultimately obedient, right? They'll make noise, they'll threaten, but when the vote comes down, they basically never lose votes when they have the votes, when they have the numbers, at least, when they have the majority and a vote gets come that gets brought to the floor, they pass it. Republicans have had all sorts of embarrassments in the past with Boehner and Ryan as speaker. And that was when they had bigger majorities, too. So this could be, you know, Kevin McCarthy wants to be speaker. Be careful what you wish for, because I, I think it's going to be at times very tricky for him. And we're already seeing. You know, some of these chairmen coming out and saying we're going to be totally all in on the Hunter Biden investigation stuff. Okay, I'm fine with an inquiry into that. I'm fine with some oversight on a lot of different fronts. You also have to be careful and judicious about what you prioritize and why and what you amplify and what message you're sending to the American people. I would like to know things about Hunter Biden. And I don't think that they've told the truth to us. And I do think that the media and others colluded to cover up that whole story ahead of the 2020 election. We've talked about it a lot here. I also think that aside from the hardcore base, most Americans are more interested in the Republicans focusing on other things. And I think sort of reading the country is going to be an important thing, an important part of having a majority that could potentially be built upon two years from now. So some of those tensions, I think, are going to be rather interesting to look at. All that being said, and I made a few of these points a couple days ago, having the Republicans in the majority, even if it's slim, even if it's not terribly functional, is still far better than the alternative, which is an extremely 
functional Democratic majority ramming through a bunch of Joe Biden agenda items on a party line vote, costing trillions of dollars and fueling inflation. Right. The the unified control of Washington, D.C., in the presidency, the Senate and the House, all under Democratic rule, that is now going to be over. That is very good news. It is a bad agenda that needs to be stopped and checked. And a Republican House, even if they might not get a ton done proactively, affirmatively, they will stop deaden its tracks the Biden agenda. That is, in my mind, unequivocally good news. And then the Republicans will control committees. They will control what comes to the floor. These are good things as well when it comes to accountability, investigations, etc. So for those reasons alone, even though it's underwhelming and a bit disappointing what the final margin is going to be, even if it was a margin of one or two, who has the gavel matters a lot. Speaking of that gavel, it will no longer be in the clutches of the gentlelady from Northern California. Nancy Pelosi announcing that she is out. She will not pursue a position in leadership moving forward. I mean, her party lost. She's in her 80s. A horrible thing just happened to her husband. This is not surprising. I want to analyze that. I want to talk about the Republican side of things in the Senate, maybe react briefly to President Trump's anticipated announcement for president, which, of course, he then did on Tuesday night. I mean, no real surprise there at all. So there's a lot still to get to just this hour, just on the stuff that's happened in the last 48 hours. And I will try to squeeze in as much of it as I can before getting to our fabulous guests and a lot of other topics On today's Friday edition of The Guy Benson Show, glad to have you here, glad to be back on the air, back home in the United States. Please stay tuned. We'll be right back. Fresh conservative talk, Guy Benson Show. Pull up a chair and join me, Rachel Campos Duffy. And me, former U.S. Congressman Sean Duffy, as we share our perspective on the discussions happening at kitchen tables across America. Download from the kitchen table, the Duffy's at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you download podcasts. I'm Guy Benson. We're back. Thank you for listening. Back stateside as well, not just from commercial break, having spent the last couple of days in London for a couple of events, a couple of broadcasts from over there as well. So this was not really that dramatic. The Senate vote among Republicans on retaining Mitch McConnell as the Republican leader. I know it's been a bit fashionable to try to blame him for what happened last Tuesday, and I think that that is very silly for a number of reasons. I'm not absolving him from any blame at all. I think there's blame to go around, especially on the Senate side, but McConnell raised gobs of money and spent gobs of money, even on people that weren't his top choice at all for those races, including a couple people who were like openly against him as leader. Because ultimately, it's a team sport. It's a numbers game. And he wanted to make sure that Republicans got the numbers. That's not going to happen. Right? It will be a Democratic majority of 50 or 51 seats, depending on the outcome down in Georgia. But there was this question, oh, because there was an underperformance 
Who are we going to blame? Some people, I think it was in their political interest to blame McConnell. Some people just dislike him in general. I am obviously not among them. I think he's an extremely effective leader. I understand why the left hates him so much. The left hates him because he's very effective. And I think the opposition to him on the right is often misplaced. And sometimes just taking the form of political expediency of people who want to ingratiate themselves with the base or to send certain signals about you know who they stand with or whatever. Maybe they're planning to run for president or whatever it might be. But there were some people in the Republican Senate conference who were talking about needing a new leader. And one of the talks that I gave when I was over in the U.K. was on Sunday, and as a very pleasant surprise, Senator Joni Ernst was there. She was giving a national security foreign policy speech elsewhere in London. She heard about the event, and then she came to this talk that I gave. And one of the things I asked her was, uh, you know, I really don't think McConnell's in any danger here of losing the renomination as Republican leader, do you? I said, I, I think it'll be probably pretty lopsided, and she agreed with me. Of course, she had one of the votes as a member of the Senate Republicans. It was a private ballot, so we don't have all the names, but we know that the final number was 37 for McConnell, 10 for Rick Scott, who was his opposition, Rick Scott from Florida, the NRSC chairman, (laughs) the guy in charge of the committee to elect more Republicans to the Senate, who was on this show a bunch. We like him. We get along with him. He was predicting 52, 53 seats for the Republicans. It's going to be 49 or 50. He also, I think, made some unforced errors handing the Democrats talking points about dangerous things the Republicans would do that other Republicans hadn't even signed on to. He just put them out there. I'm just not sure that that's the guy that you necessarily want. If you want you know, a real serious opposition to McConnell, I don't know why in the world you would pick Rick Scott, given what just happened. But that's, I guess, what they decided to do. He was the token opposition, and he got 10 votes. So it was 37 to 10, and there was one present or abstention. So that was the vote. It wasn't close. McConnell, cocaine Mitch, wins easily, and he'll be the Republican Senate leader in the next Congress. For better or for worse? I would say overall for the better. I know some of you might disagree. Now, on the other side of the aisle, on the other side of Capitol Hill, a complete changing of the guard in Democratic leadership, including Pelosi, out. We'll break that down and react next. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton with Row. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my <laughs> name is Chad. His name is Jonathan. But you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. And with great confidence in our caucus, I will not seek re-election to Democratic leadership in the next Congress. For me, the hours come for a new generation to lead the Democratic caucus that I so deeply respect. Back on the Guy Benson Show, that was Nancy Pelosi, the House Speaker yesterday, who was not going to be Speaker no matter what because the Republicans have won, but making it official that she will not be in leadership 
either. She will remain as a member of the House, but not in leadership. And it seems as though the earmarked heir apparent who has been pre-selected by the Democrats is a guy named Congressman Hakeem Jeffries from New York City, which would mean that you'd have two Democratic leaders, in one in each chamber, from New York City, liberal Democrats from New York. Interesting, given what just happened in New York in the elections, largely because of the failures of the governor in that state and the crime in New York City, you'll have New York City front and center in terms of Democratic leadership. A brief note on Hakeem Jeffries. They're kind of trying to portray him as a moderate. Um, I, I would not call him that at all. He's a liberal. He's a progressive. He has some unhinged social media posts. If you go back and look at some of the things that he says. For example, election denial. He was a 2016 election denier, calling that stolen, illegitimate, President Trump illegitimate. He's called the Supreme Court illegitimate. So from the Democracy and Institutions Party, they're now going to make the leader in the House someone who does the type of things that they say is a huge emergency to democracy if a Republican does it. It's kind of amazing how their standards shift. If it's Stacey Abrams, if it's Corrine Jean-Pierre, if it's Hakeem Jeffries, if it's Hillary Clinton, you name it. I mean, is Hakeem Jeffries way out there with the squad? No. But also, just because you're not Rashida Tlaib doesn't make you a moderate exactly. I mean, neither was Pelosi. Pelosi, Pelosi, rather, was a San Francisco liberal. Let's talk about her, because there'll be plenty of time to discuss Hakeem Jeffries and it was a Catherine Clark of Massachusetts who would replace Denny Hoyer. Denny Hoyer of Maryland also stepping down from leadership, also staying, at least for now, in the Congress as a senior member, but not in leadership. They're finally turning the page passing the torch, handing off the baton, whatever image you want to use for a younger generation of House Democratic leadership. You know, the question is, how effective will they be compared to the current leadership led by Speaker Pelosi? I do want to talk about her for a second. Begrudgingly, unfortunately, I will say that she was clearly overall very effective as a leader. Part of that is because I think Democrats, and I alluded to this earlier, are better and like part of their worldview is collectivism. So ultimately they are better at getting in line and marching together. When the chips are down, when push comes to shove... Democratic leaders have had far fewer embarrassing meltdowns within their own conferences, unable to get the votes or whatever. Far fewer of those than Republicans have in recent years. That's just been one of the realities of American politics lately. So part of that was just, you know, that was an advantage that she had inherently based on the types of people that she was leading and the ideology that they represent and the way that they operate. But also she was an effective a pretty ruthless leader, and unfortunately was able to thread the needle on a number of occasions where it was very difficult to get big things passed. I would say big, bad things passed for the country, but she did it. They thought they were making progress. 
didn't you know seem that way to me. I'm a conservative for a reason. So I was almost never rooting for her to succeed, but she did succeed in a lot of significant ways. She's also a trailblazer, first female Speaker of the House. She was very consequential. Right? I think that when the history books are written on congressional leadership, she's going to be up there as one of the more effective leaders in the U.S. Congress ever. And that, again, is a tribute to her, but also a sorry, regretful admission from people who weren't exactly thrilled by the things that she was achieving. But you still have to sort of look at what she did, setting aside the disagreement, and evaluate it that way as well. Her husband was attacked recently. That was awful. I wish her, I wish him, I wish their family well. I've seen, you know, Mitch McConnell put out maybe a little paragraph tribute to her after this announcement. It was polite. He said some nice things about her. Speaker Ryan, Paul Ryan, the former speaker, sent out a nice, polite tweet. I've seen some conservatives all angry. Oh, these weak Republicans. She's awful. She's evil. Why are you saying these things? Like, it's just basic manners. She's stepping aside after a very significant career in congressional leadership. I don't like almost anything that she did. But to, like, say a few nice words on her way out the door is fine. It's just kind of like civil, normal stuff. It doesn't bother me. Now, I did see other people say, well, she's kind of like the House version of Mitch McConnell in that Mitch McConnell is loathed by the other side, although McConnell has a lot more Republican detractors than she has Democratic detractors for reasons that I I understand but I disagree with. As I mentioned earlier in the previous segment, I'm a McConnell fan overall because when it comes down to it, his priorities are good. He's smart. He thinks way ahead. He plays chess, not checkers. He's run circles for the most part around his Democratic counterparts, especially Schumer. He's been extremely effective. And then his prioritization of the judiciary, legendary. Keeping the seat open after Scalia died, that whole thing, huge, huge legacy. The reason I bring that up is people are saying, oh, well, that's he's to the Senate what Pelosi is to the House. And you kind of have to grit your teeth and admire them just in terms of their ruthlessness and their, their efficiency and their, their ability to get things done. I understand the comparison. It's sort of – they're both from a certain generation, right? They're, they're both going to go down in history as these very effective congressional leaders. I would say that she, Pelosi, is much more of a demagogue than Mitch McConnell. Mitch McConnell is measured – Sometimes too measured for the base's liking, like the Republican base. When he gives speeches and puts out statements, it's clear that he has thought through every word of what he's saying. He's careful. He's not a bomb thrower rhetorically. She, however, would fly off the handle sometimes. She had a temper, ripping up the State of the Union speech behind Trump. Remember that? Just a really bad, disrespectful look. I don't care what you think of Trump. That's bad. It's the type of thing that an institutionalist like McConnell would never do. 
She is way out there on certain issues. She smears people frequently. She wouldn't condemn, as we've talked about a lot, firebombings of pro-life centers because she's just a total abortion fanatic. So in that sense, I'd say McConnell and Pelosi aren't really the same. He's a better person than she is. He's a more calming presence than she is. He is much less of a nasty demagogue than she is. And if I'm not making it obvious enough, it should be rather clear that I'm not a big fan of hers. I still think you can tip a hat. You can acknowledge her place in history. You can acknowledge her skill and her ruthlessness. Part of McConnell's ruthlessness, by the way, his his sort of spin on being ruthless is just forcing the Democrats to live by their own rules and standards. That's where he really gets them. And that's why they hate him so much. He just takes the rules and standards that they make up on the fly for their own power, and then when it's no longer convenient for them and he has some power, he forces them to lie in the bed that they made. I think that is absolute fair game. I love when that happens. They deserve it. They've earned it. With her, she whipped votes with the best of them. She would not lose votes that she brought to the floor, famously. If there was a vote that they had called and the vote was happening, it was a foregone conclusion. They had gotten their ducks in a row and there wouldn't be a bunch of chaos. They were going to get whatever it was passed. Often much to my chagrin. And you can just wish someone well in their retirement after the bad thing that happened to her husband and just say, you know, Godspeed and good luck. And she's not officially retired. She's just going to be in less of a high-profile position. I can't imagine she'll be in Congress much longer. Like, you know, after that career, do you really want to be a backbencher at the age of 82? Is she 80? I think she's around 82. So I think you can be polite, admit or acknowledge some of these things, but I'm not also going to like all of a sudden pretend like she's some wonderful person who did wonderful things to the country and, and come on the air here with some stirring, heartfelt tributes to the life and times and achievements and rhetoric of Nancy Pelosi, which leave a lot to be desired, in my opinion. And my hope is that her hand-picked successor, whom she's endorsed, Hakeem Jeffries, is much worse at the job than she has been. I hope that the new, younger Democratic leadership team will be inefficient and incompetent in those roles. It's easier to lead a minority, right, where you kind of band together, link arms and say no to whatever the majority is trying to do. They'll probably be able to play some mischief with the Republicans all over the place, struggling to get to majorities on a lot of things. That's just my guess. That's my prediction, given the margins and given some of the characters on the Republican side of things. But hopefully we actually won't have an opportunity anytime soon, if ever, to take inventory of the skill of Speaker Hakeem Jeffries. Hopefully they'll be in the minority for a very long time. We've seen what happens when the Democrats are in the majority. 
It is overwhelmingly bad for the country, in my view, and so I'm not eager for more of that anytime soon. But the, in all likelihood, Jeffrey's era will start, and the Pelosi era is ending. So my parting thought on her is sort of a strange combination of a, a reluctant, as I said, begrudging respect at the skill, and then a blend of Godspeed and good, risen, and good riddance. Godspeed, good riddance, both. Now, we've hit a lot of stuff. I was gone for two days, as I mentioned at the very top, and there's been fast-moving news cycles both of those days when it comes to politics. We've talked about Republicans officially winning the House. They're at 219 or 220 with a few more race le- uh, races left to call. We got through that. We got through McConnell's uh, re-election as the Republican leader. We talked about some of the struggles and challenges in Bumpy Road ahead for the House Republicans. We've talked about the Democrats uh, in, in the House and Pelosi here. Then the other thing that happened, which was on Tuesday, was, as everyone was expecting, Donald Trump announced that he was running for president. And it really didn't make this big, huge splash, I think partially because everyone knew it was coming, partially because we're all just exhausted of politics. And then he jumped right back in one week after an election cycle that didn't really go very well for the Republicans overall, certainly not well for a lot of the candidates that he was most associated and invested in, associated with and invested in. But he is now officially already, two years in advance, a declared candidate for the presidency in 2024. I will give a few more thoughts on that development as soon as we come back after a short break on The Guy Benson Show. Guy Benson will be right back. In order to make America great and glorious again, I am tonight announcing my candidacy for President of the United States. As we continue here on The Guy Benson Show, that was former President Trump on Tuesday at Mar-a-Lago doing what we all knew he was going to do. He's now in for the 2024 race. And I feel like there'll be so much more to say about this. I've already said a fair amount. I don't really want to dwell on it. I am not supportive of this run. I'm supportive of a lot of what he did as president. I think the Republican Party needs someone in a new generation, someone who is better situated to win. There's now been some empirical data coming out about the drag that Trump had on the party and how Trump-endorsed, especially stop-the-steal-type Trump-endorsed candidates, trailed like the Republican baseline by five, six, seven points. That is how you lose elections. And I just don't think Trump would win in 2024. It's one of the reasons why I'm not thrilled about this. I'm sure there are people in this audience who are very excited that he's running again. There's probably some people with mixed feelings, and there's probably some people who are with me. And there'll be lots of time to hash that out because it's November of 22. Usually people start announcing for president 
you know, the equivalent of early next year or even the spring of next year. Now it's like pre-holidays, Trump is already in. I have told you why I think strategically, if you were rooting for him, this was not a great decision to be in this early. He risks sort of flopping and, and not really coming out with any momentum. If he announces and doesn't really get any sort of momentum or burst, that's not really what he wants to see. There could be burnout just of his whole shtick, burnout of the constant politics. I think he would have been better served to wait. Also, by him getting in, some people now won't get in because they'd said publicly or privately that if he runs, they won't run. And I think that his easiest path back to the nomination for the Republicans in 2024 is to have as little opposition as possible within the primary. Or check that, the other way around. To have as much opposition, as many people within that field as possible, which then lessens the ability of any alternative candidate to consolidate a ton of support. If there's, a, if there's you know, 12 other people or 16 other people or whatever it is, that's how it played out in 2015 and 2016 to his advantage. I think he should be throwing parties for anyone who wants to get in the race. Instead, he's sort of big early. And if that ends up clearing the field and he runs away with it, then it will turn out to be strategically smart. If not, and he's running a risk here, then he might be hurting himself. I guess we'll see. And we'll have months, years even, to debate that moving forward. Another hour of The Guy Benson Show is coming up. Kimberly Strassel is next. Don't go anywhere. From the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative, Guy Benson Show. A new hour is here on the Guy Benson Show on this Friday. Glad to have you all here with us. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. The podcast is free every day. That includes bonus Benson on the weekends. Catch me on Fox News Sunday, this coming Sunday. I'm on the panel. Check your local listings. Fox News alert. The Dow closing up 199 points at the close today, finishing the week at 33,746. With us now, our first guest of this Friday show, Kim Strassel, Potomac Watch columnist at the Wall Street Journal, Fox News contributor. Her latest book is Resistance at All Costs. And Kim, it's always good to have you here. Hi, Guy. It's always great to be here. Before we get into the elections that just happened last week, and you've written a column about it, a wake-up call, all of this, I do want to get your reaction to some breaking news earlier today. The Attorney General Merrick Garland making an announcement, maybe not a stunning announcement, but an announcement that has clearly been impacted by something that happened earlier in the week and uh, – whole saga that we've been covering here on and off, and I know you've weighed in on multiple times. Here is what Attorney General Garland said. The Justice Department cut 27 today. The Department of Justice has long recognized that in certain extraordinary cases, it is in the public interest to appoint a special prosecutor to independently manage an investigation and prosecution. Based on recent developments, including the former president's announcement that he is a candidate for president in the next election and the sitting president's stated intention to be a candidate as well, I have concluded that it is in the public interest 
to appoint a special counsel. Such an, uh, an appointment underscores the Department's commitment to both independence and accountability in particularly sensitive matters. It also allows prosecutors and agents to continue their work expeditiously and to make decisions indisputably guided only by the facts and the law. All right, Kim. So special counsel, another one now appointed, this time involving President Trump. It's a, not quite the same circumstances as the last one with Mueller and all of that. But here's another special counsel. This involves the Mar-a-Lago raid and investigations into the former president, who, as you just heard there, Garland saying is now an announced candidate for president again. Uh, he, Garland, works under the sitting president who says he's planning to run again. And so they're handing this off to have an independent look at it from a federal prosecution perspective. Uh, just what your reaction, what is your reaction uh, to this decision from the attorney general today? Yeah, to start with, I heard the attorney general say in extraordinary circumstances, were it be that these were relatively rare in extraordinary circumstances, we have special counsels all over the place. And I would just note that it's always in order to kind of clean up a political mess created by an entity of the Department of Justice itself. So Mueller was there to look into uh, a Russia collusion hoax that the FBI fabricated. Uh, Durham is there to clean up behind Mueller, who didn't do his job. Uh, now we have this new special counsel that's going to look into this affair, which is only happening because the Department of Justice took the unprecedented step to raid the house of a former president over what is essentially now people are beginning to admit a document dispute. Remember all the conversation about how he might have nuclear codes? Well, apparently now all the media is saying, well, it just turns out this might have been some things he wanted to keep. You know, did we really need to go through all of this? So now here we are. I guess in terms of this decision itself, I don't really like it in that one problem with special counsel is that they often offer the appearance of political insulation without actually persuading anyone that there really is. Um, any decision by this prosecutor, Smith, to indict will still be seen as political by vast parts of the America. Um, I think it could also prolong all of this because Smith is now going to have to get up to speed. Um, and, you know, the other thing, too, is if Donald Trump did go out and announce because he wanted to forestall something like this. It's just going to further allow him to claim he is a victim here of Department of Justice, you know, palace intrigue. So that's I mean, I generally agree with basically everything that you said there. And I honestly, Kim, I just like feeling this sense of absolute fatigue from all of this. And it's not because I'm tired of Trump specifically or tired of the investigations into Trump and how some of them look political. It's like just all of it combined over these last few years. Like I, I'm struggling to muster the enthusiasm to even lead a conversation about it on the show right now with you. And that's kind of how I felt in the last hour reacting very briefly because I was off the show the last two days I was traveling. So I hadn't reacted officially or formally to President Trump's announcement uh, that he's running again for 2024. And I, you know, I had like three or four minutes to fill. And of course, I have thoughts. I just don't really want to be talking about him running for president right now. I just want to sort of get to Thanksgiving, step away from politics for a little while, enjoy the holidays and Christmas, and then, you know, start to figure out who's going to start announcing and when. And the, the next cycle will start ramping up soon enough. But it just, you know, my, my brain is crowded with this stuff. 
And I just wonder how you feel about President Trump's uh, announcement on Tuesday and if that plays into your overall analysis of the midterms that we just got finished with. And in fact, there are still some races uncalled. Here we are, what, a Friday after the Friday following the election. And there are still some races uncalled, which I think is an indictment of the system in some of these states in terms of the way that they count. But also it underscores that we're still processing what just happened. And to be already looking ahead to 2024 is just, I'm, I'm just not terribly uh, sort of, I'm not zoned in on that. I'm sort of zoned out on that still. Yeah, you know what really struck me about the announcement, Guy, is that forget that I'm exhausted and not interested in this. Nobody else seemed to be either. Um, And that was really notable to me. You know, Donald Trump is not the first former president to make another run at the White House. Um, But what's been really notable, if you look through history at those guys, because of their their prior positions as president of the United States and of the heads of their party, when they began those runs, they began them with the support of a huge chunk of their party infrastructure, you know, the important and elected officials and important fundraisers. And, you know, they, they kind of had a lot of momentum. You look down there at Mar-a-Lago on Tuesday, there was really almost no elected officials other than Madison Cawthorn. Um, even Ivanka Trump doesn't think this is a good idea and is not going to be taking part in it. Uh, yeah, she, she announced few- she would not be involved in this in this campaign. At all, or in politics, not just that, but were he to be reelected, she's not going to be involved in politics going forward. You know, you would expect a president, uh, people who had worked in the past for a president who did this, uh, to have that loyalty. Uh, In fact, there was really nobody from Trump's cabinet or former White House or administration there other than like a handful of people. A lot of the folks that did watch it were dismissive of it online. Uh, The fundraisers are all bailing the mega donors. Uh, And, you know, this, I think, really to me sums up that everybody is still absorbing this, as you said. But to me, the takeaway lesson, the thing that fundamentally shifted in the days following last Tuesday was Republicans woke up and realized just how big a liability Donald Trump potentially is for the Republican Party. And that this whole belief that he's the guy that decides who wins election is not the case because he actually managed to lose a bunch of elections for people this time and that they may need to now start looking for a different future. Well, I mean, that's part of it, right? So like in 2016, you got to hand it to him. He went up against this massive, you know, death star of a machine in Clinton world and the Democrats got absolutely obliterated in terms of spending. The media was all against him. A lot of the Republican Party was at least somewhat against him. And he won anyway. Right. And he had to really get this inside straight and run the table in only this very narrow way to lose the popular vote and win the presidency the way that he did. But he did it. And then he was president for four years and got a lot of stuff done, much of which, I, much of which rather, I thought was, was good. Um, however, I think one of the things that may have crystallized in a lot of people's minds last Tuesday and then waking up Wednesday and as these days now have unfolded with the counts, the idea that the Republicans will just you know, win by default because the Democrats are bad, I mean, that's, that's gone. That is what they were supposed to have just done, and they didn't. They barely won the House. 
They didn't win the Senate. They lost governorships. So it's not sort of like, oh, the Democrats are awful. And so people are going to come flocking back to the GOP. That didn't just happen. Why is that? And you look to 2018 when the Democrats had a blue wave, 2020 when Joe Biden won and beat Trump, 2021 when the Democrats swept those runoff elections in Georgia, therefore and thereby winning the U.S. Senate. And now a really historically underwhelming performance by the Republicans in 2022, where the circumstances seem to be like perfectly aligned for a big red wave and it didn't really happen. And Trump, I don't deserve I don't think he deserves all the blame for that, but I think he deserves absolutely some of it. I mean, that's a lot of elections in a row that I just mentioned after the 2016 sort of black horse event or black swan event, I should say. Uh, where things haven't really gone well. And I just wonder, are there Republican voters who are starting to associate the lack of winning, including winnable races that has happened during this period of Trump being the most prominent Republican in the country? And are people now willing to move on from him because of that? I think those are still open questions, but I think that maybe more people are open to it now than they were even a month ago. Well, especially those who are doing the compare and contrast, right? You just laid out the losses and the thing that they have in common, which is often Donald Trump either being overshadowing the party or having picked the candidates that managed to lose. But compare that to the winning of the past couple of years, because there has been that too. Glenn Youngkin in Virginia who very much had his own brand and did not suck up to Donald Trump, uh, but ran on his own issues. Ron DeSantis, who just a couple of days before the election was getting lambasted and taunted by the president, who did not get the president's endorsement, but absolutely had one of the most stunning victories in, 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 in Florida ever. Brian Kemp. Remember, Donald Trump actually stood up a candidate to primary him, uh, saying that it was his mission to get rid of Brian Kemp in Georgia because of his grievances over what happened in the 2020 election. Uh, Brian Kemp not only defeated David Perdue in that primary, he went on to a stomping victory over Stacey Abrams. You know, and the, the lists go on in that way. But what we're finding is that voters really want people who are not looking backward, okay, but who are looking forward and also who are providing kind of some of those straightforward things that are still just, they draw Americans, you know, a, a good economic environment, uh, low taxation, school choice. Like, how can you make my life better on a day-by-day -day basis? They are tired, like we are, guy of special counsels and impeachments and, you know, the back and forth and election fraud scenarios. They just want to be able to go to the grocery store and have a dozen eggs not cost so much. Yeah, no, I, I think that that right there is basically the message that Republicans, for the most part, ran on right this year. Things costing less so they could freeze out inflation and, and put an end to some of this madness in terms of spending and that you don't get you know carjacked on your way to the grocery store. Vote for us. And that generally should be a pretty successful message in the environment. And, you know, in the position, the first midterm of a new president, all that stuff, we've been through all of it. And then it just kind of fizzled out a little bit. Republicans will have some more power. Uh, I think that's good. But 
not nearly as much as they ought to. And people are wondering why. And I think it's an interesting conversation that's going to continue. And I think you just spoke there for a lot of people. Kim Strassel at the Wall Street Journal, Fox News contributor. Kimberly, have a great weekend. Have a great Thanksgiving if we don't talk. And we'll talk again soon. You too, Guy. Have a great Thanksgiving. Bye-bye. That's Kimberly Strassel. On the Guy Benson Show, much more still to come. Don't go anywhere. I'm Guy Benson. We're back. Well, they just had the Patriot Awards down in Florida through Fox Nation. I was there last year broadcasting. We weren't down there this time around, but I was seeing all sorts of social media posts about it. And it's a very cool event that Fox puts on each year honoring average Americans who are patriotic and do things for their country, for their neighborhoods. It's really an inspirational event. And they've done a fabulous job with it. And this year, again, was no exception. And one of the surprise awards that I thought was quite moving went to one of our colleagues here at Fox News, Benjamin Hall, who, of course, was very seriously wounded in Ukraine, came under fire from Russians. He survived but was hurt quite badly. He was in the hospital for months. And tragically, two of our other colleagues died in that incident including a freelancer and a beloved photographer, cameraman here, named Pierre. Benjamin made it. He's a young father. And we've been trying to keep you posted on his recovery, his convalescence. We get little bits and pieces every so often. Benjamin and I actually were just emailing the other day. I sent him a note. He responded, seemed to be in good spirits. I was reminded of Pierre because I was doing the show from London early this week from the Bureau, that is where Pierre was based, and they just have where his desk used to be. They have a few photos of him and some of his work right there, and it's sobering. Just an awful, horrible, tragic incident. So last night at the Patriot Awards, Benjamin Hall, who's been off the air since this attack, was given the Courage Award during the ceremony, and he had recorded a video accepting the award. And with rapt attention, thousands of people in attendance and all the many people watching at home heard Benjamin Hall, saw Benjamin Hall deliver this short speech, again via video, cut 26. Uh, Joey Harris, thank you so much. Thank you, everyone, for this. Uh, it's a great, great honor. And, um, you know, I wish I could be there in person yeah, to pick it up, uh, but I can't yet. Uh, I am doing very well now. Uh, I'm walking a lot better. Uh, I'm seeing better. My injuries are getting better. Uh, And that is all thanks to the people who came to save me. It's thanks to the people who put me back together, the doctors, the nurses, uh, the airmen, the soldiers, who all, in some sense, uh, risked their own lives to save me. So I want to lift this award to them. I want to lift this award to them and to all of us and to everyone who is doing the same sort of things out there. So thank you all. I'll see you soon. And then a big round of applause from the crowd. And we are so happy that he is doing better. I'm sure his family is eager for him to continue to improve. And if anyone was deserving of the Courage Award at the Patriot Awards at Fox Nation, it was Benjamin Hall. And 
we continue to be privileged to call him a colleague. And I hope that we get to see him at some point back on the air. That's an update on his condition. Great to hear his voice and to see him. Looking pretty good, all things considered. The Guy Benson Show continues after this short break. Back to politics when we return. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. Welcome back to the Guy Benson Show. I want to talk about another thing that happened while I was gone traveling overseas, and that was a big procedural vote in the U.S. Senate over a bill called the Respect for Marriage Act, a version of which had passed the House of Representatives months ago. We talked about it then. I was in favor of it then, the House version, even though it had a couple shortcomings in my view, and we had a good constructive discussion on the air here with Congressman Mike Gallagher of Wisconsin, who was a no vote but explained why and talked through some of the things he would like to have seen improved. And even though we disagreed, we had a good discussion like adults about it. So then it got punted over to the Senate, having passed the House, with the votes of roughly one out of four Republican members of the House, almost 50 of whom voted yes. I believe the exact number was 47. That's a very large number, representing a sea change. I think it's a little bit confusing if you get dragged into the weeds on what the Respect for Marriage Act does precisely. But I'm going to try to summarize it sort of broad strokes here. It is not technically a gay marriage bill or same-sex marriage bill that would make same-sex marriage explicitly the law of the land everywhere, which parenthetically it is because of the Obergefell Supreme Court decision of 2015. Right, That decision established a constitutional right to same-sex marriage at the Supreme Court, and that has been the binding law ever since. Whether you agree or disagree, whether you thought that was an appropriate use of judicial power, whether you believe that that inherent right is enshrined in the Constitution, that has been the binding precedent and the law of the land now for years. And if you didn't know, if you aren't familiar with me, uh, just as a disclosure, I, in fact, got gay married. <laughs> I'm in a same-sex marriage. To my husband, we got married in 2019. So I, of course, have something of a point of view on this. But I also have respect for judicial restraint. I also have respect for religious liberty. I have some nuanced thoughts on this. And part of the reason that I like the Respect for Marriage Act, as it made its way through the House, was it was a fairly unambitious, relatively humble, if you will, piece of legislation that simply says that, and this is sort of a backstop, a legislative backstop, if the Obergefell Supreme Court decision were to fall, which I don't think it will. I'm highly confident that it won't. I've talked about why on this show. I think a lot of people got spun up after Roe versus Wade went down in the Dobbs decision, which I think was the right decision, by the way. Roe versus Wade was wrongly decided years ago. This should be left up to the people and their representatives. When Dobbs was issued and Roe went down, because Justice Thomas, in his concurring opinion, made a few references to other issues as well, including this one, there was this panic among a lot of people saying, oh, it's abortion now, but they're going to come after these next things in short order. 
contraception and birth control, same-sex marriage, they're going to chip away or crater all of these rights that currently exist. And I very calmly tried to make a case at townhall.com, on social media, here on the show, that I don't believe that to be the case. Part of the reason being the Dobbs decision explicitly said the opposite. Anticipating that attack and anticipating those concerns, Justice Alito said, no, that's not what we're doing here. Here's why the abortion question is different than some of these other ones. It was laid out right in black and white in the decision itself. But even if you think that's a pretext and they don't really mean it, and if they have the opportunity of Burgerfell's going down, I really don't think so. I don't think that they would even have four votes out of the nine in order to take the case. You need four to grant cert is what they call it. I don't think they would have four, let alone five to overturn a Burgerfell. And part of the reason I believe that is there's a 6-3 majority on the court already to expand gay rights. That was a decision called Bostock, I believe in 2020 where the author of the decision that expanded gay rights was Justice Gorsuch, a Trump appointee, with Chief Justice Roberts joining and then the liberals on the court as well. So I am not imminently or even medium to long-term concerned about Obergefell going away and the idea that all of a sudden marriages would be uprooted all over the place and we would go backwards on this. I don't think that is a realistic scenario. I just don't. And I think I have good, rational, sound reasons to say that. However, if you just feel like I'm wrong or you don't want to take the chance or all of a sudden this thing's going to sneak up out of nowhere, I disagree. There's not really even any sort of major case right now working its way up to even challenge a Burgerfell. But let's just say, for the sake of argument, that is something you have concerns about or you believe might be in the offing. The point of a bill, actual legislation, like the Respect for Marriage Act, the point of that would be to provide a backup. Like if a Burgerfell went down, would there be some sort of status quo enshrined in law that's actually passed by elected representatives? Which I think is preferable in a lot of ways to justices decreeing one thing or another. And what the Respect for Marriage Act does, essentially, is say marriages will be considered valid by the federal government and state by state, individual states need to accept as valid marriages that are legally entered into in other states. Even if you had, some states would say it's illegal, other states would say it's legal. If you got married in a state where it was legal, but you were moving to or lived in a state where post Obergefell, hypothetically, it wasn't legal, If that marriage is valid and legal where you got married, through the full faith and credit clause of the Constitution, the validity of that marriage would have to be recognized in the other states as well. They wouldn't have to legalize gay marriage like they're going to perform them in that state, but from a legal perspective, they would have to respect the validity of those unions, as would the federal government. That's what, more or less, the Respect for Marriage Act would do. So as I mentioned, it passed the House months ago with 47 House Republicans joining the Democrats and voting yes. And then it came over to the U.S. Senate side, and there were a number of senators from both sides of the aisle who were in a small working group trying to make the bill as palatable as possible. Because obviously you have to get past 60 votes, a potential filibuster. You need to get a a good number of Senate votes in order for this thing to move forward. And so what they did was, in my opinion, from my perspective, they improved the bill. 
Some of the concerns about religious liberty were ironed out. There was new verbiage and language entered into this piece of legislation specifically and more broadly protecting religious liberty as it pertains to issues arising from gay marriage. There was also something of a drafting error in the previous version that Congressman Gallagher talked to us about when he and I had that conversation here, that under one clause of the bill, because of a change in the language, it could open the door for polyamorous or polygamous marriage or multi-partner marriages to be legal. And some conservatives said we need to really close the door on that completely. We're talking about consenting to adults entering a marriage. We want to keep the limits there. And so they tweaked the language on that front as well. So a fix, an improvement, a broadening of protections on religious liberty. To me, these are all improvements of the House passed bill. Now, there were still objections from a number of conservatives Some of them were more thoughtful than others. My friend, Senator Mike Lee of Utah, offered an amendment that would really get even more specific on religious liberty and protecting private businesses like florists and photographers and the cake maker out in Colorado, that story, trying to address that through this legislation. And he was saying, you know, look, if people are serious about religious liberty, then they ought to adopt this amendment. And because that didn't get into the final piece of legislation, Lee and a bunch of others said, we're not going to vote for it because we're still concerned about this issue. And the thing is, so am I. I think what they've done out in Colorado to that Christian Baker is outrageous. Targeted discrimination, persecution. The government of Colorado went along with it. They ended up getting slapped down partially at the U.S. Supreme Court. But we've seen this playing out across the country with small closely owned, like family owned businesses, not wanting to participate and offer their creative services, effectively their speech to same sex weddings or same sex ceremonies, which I think under conscious protections, under a pluralistic society, under a first amendment environment where you shouldn't have coerced or compelled speech, people should be able to make those choices. Gay people should be able to get married. People should be able to choose whether or not to service those specific marriages. I don't think it's like, you know, serving gay people in general. This is a specific area of serving weddings where marriage is a sacred religious definition to a lot of people. And they shouldn't be forced to participate in a wedding that they believe goes against their religious beliefs. Like, I think that we can just get along in society and let people make their choices based on their values instead of trying to just mandate and coerce and force people to go along with everything. That's the position that I've held. And I think ultimately that comes down to people's rights, and whether it's in this particular bill or not, and it isn't, right? There's there's some protections, but it doesn't necessarily apply to these small businesses. I think this is something that the courts do need to decide. I think the Supreme Court in particular needs to decisively protect people like that baker out in Colorado. And, you know, the florist over here and the photographer over there. Their rights need to be protected in a pretty clear-cut decision on this to put an end to it. So we have legal gay marriage, legal conscious protections, and everyone can then just sort of live and let live in a way that I think is productive rather than punitive. But I think ultimately that will lie with the courts. 
And it's not necessarily specifically related to same-sex marriage. There are other issues at play with some of the persecution and the attacks and the lawsuits on this sort of related but separate track issue. So I believe the court needs to protect those people, protect their rights, protect their conscience rights, and so on and so forth. I also don't think that that is a good reason to oppose the Respect for Marriage Act, which is not sweeping, not overreaching. It is closely crafted. It is constitutional. I think it is a sensible way to create what I believe is a duplicative, unnecessary legislative backstop just in case Obergefell goes away, the Supreme Court decision, which, as I've said, I don't believe is going to be the case. If you're going to do it congressionally, this would be the way to do it. And what the Senate has done in their working group has improved the House pass version. So it'll go back to the House once it passes the Senate, which it will because of this vote that just happened this week, which was a procedural vote, but it had to get to 60. It did more than that, thanks to the help of 12 Senate Republicans. Senators Blunt, Burr, Capito, Collins, Ernst, Lummis, Murkowski, Portman, Sullivan, Romney, Tillis, and Young. Those are the 12. Some people are dragging them. I say thank you to them. I also shouted out President Trump. When I think he's right, I say it. I don't hate the guy. And I think that on the issue of gay marriage, he has been a leader in the Republican Party, the first Republican president to ever come out in favor of same-sex marriage. He's kind of like chill and ambivalent about it. And I think he really helped reset the mentality among a decent chunk of the Republican Party on this question, without which I'm not sure you get to 12 votes, for example, in the U.S. Senate or dozens of votes in the House on something like this. So I'm grateful to him for maybe helping to shift the paradigm a little bit. And now that it's cleared the 60 vote threshold in the procedural vote, it will pass the Senate, go back to the House. It'll pass there. We'll see if it even attracts more Republican votes in the House. That very well could be the case. And then it will become the law. And I don't think it will actually matter because Obergefell isn't going anywhere. But at least it will be there. And some of the fear-mongering and hysteria can be tamped down just a little bit. Maybe. Even for just a moment. Which I think would be good. Now, a friend of mine, Ben Shapiro, has a very different view on all of this. He said something publicly. I responded. I want to get into that briefly when we come back. The Guy Benson Show. More next. Back on the Guy Benson Show, we've been talking about these congressional votes on same-sex marriage. I publicly and very politely disagreed with one of my friends, Ben Shapiro, who was arguing against the Respect for Marriage Act and urging all Republican senators to vote against it. Obviously, 12 of them disagreed and, and voted with the Democrats and got this thing advanced. But on his very popular podcast, Ben made this claim in Cut 25. The idea here is that you're going to get all the Republicans on record as to whether they support or do not support same-sex marriage. Now, let me just put this out there for the Republican senators. If you vote in favor of the idea that society has an obligation to recognize male-male or female-female dyads in the same way that society has an obligation to recognize male-female, you should not be in the Republican Party. You shouldn't. Okay, the reason I say this is not because I wish to shrink the size of the Republican Party. Because if the fundamental basis of human society is male-female child, and you think that by passing a law you can change that reality, you do not belong in government. All right, so if you disagree on this point, you shouldn't be in the Republican Party, he says. But I also don't want to shrink the Republican Party. Whether you agree with his arguments on the merit or not, the party has changed. Public opinion has changed. 
polls do not determine the righteousness of a position, but polling does give us a sense generally of where the public is. And the public is now strongly in favor of same-sex marriage, including, according to Gallup, and they've been tracking this for years, a majority of self-identified Republican voters, more than 55% now of Republican voters, are in favor of same-sex marriage. So if you're saying any senator who votes for this type of bill doesn't belong in the Republican Party, you're kind of creating a litmus test that would effectively exclude more than half of the party's voters from the party, which I don't think really makes much sense. I don't think paring down in a huge way the number of people welcome as Republicans in good standing makes any sense. Did we all notice what just happened last Tuesday in the election? I don't think that writing a bunch of people out and saying you're not welcome inside the tent is really a great idea right now. Party can't afford it. And I think creating that kind of litmus test is counterproductive. Ben is entitled to his opinions. He gives them every day. He's very smart. He's very eloquent. And we're buddies. We disagree on this. I don't want him thrown out of a coalition or the party because of it. And I wouldn't want to be thrown out of the party or the coalition because I disagree, especially when I have a mainstream, if not majority position, even within the party these days. So that kind of red line feels obsolete. It feels antiquated. It absolutely feels counterproductive. So I very politely made that case on Twitter a few days ago. And guess what? Ben sent me a private note. Very cordial, very respectful. We had a back and forth. And people are allowed to disagree and still be friends. That's how we should operate generally, I think, in this country. And because it was a private note, I won't say exactly what we said back and forth, but it was respectful and nice. And I look forward to seeing Ben sometime in the near future. And I don't have to get, like, really angry and denounce him and call him all sorts of names. Because I know that's sort of the popular way of going about, quote-unquote, debate these days, where you just try to crush someone. Who does that help? How does that help? It doesn't. But I have my platform, my opinions, and I decide to share them with you on this issue here today because I was over in the U.K. when this all went down. The Senate presumably in the coming days, we'll vote on the final version. It'll go back to the House. I think it will become law. Overall, probably unnecessary and irrelevant, but for the reasons that hopefully I've explained somewhat clearly here, it is an acceptable legislative plan as a backup, if you will. And I've said my piece, and we'll move on. More issues still to come. The happy hour is straight ahead on The Guy Benson Show. Chad Pergram. Our man on Capitol Hill will explain all of the drama involving leadership races in the House of Representatives on both sides of the aisle. Looking forward to that conversation straight ahead. It's 5 o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. It is the happy hour on this Friday. On the Guy Benson Show, thank you so much for tuning in. Happy Friday. I'm Guy Benson, political editor at townhall.com and a Fox News contributor. This hour is our happy hour, and it's sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink, which is delicious. It's refreshing. We are stocked up for the holiday coming up. TheLongDrink.com is their website. You can find out where the product is sold near you. Many more locations now. TheLongDrink.com. You can also order online. 
Always drink responsibly, 21 plus only. Programming note, I'll be on Fox News Sunday this weekend. Check your local listings with Shannon Bream and company. That's going to be Sunday morning. Our website here at the radio program, GuyBensonShow.com. Podcast is always free on demand after the show is over, plus bonus Benson on the weekends. That's GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Also, shoot us a follow on social media, Twitter and Instagram, at GuyBensonShow. Well, joining us now is Chad Pergram, senior congressional correspondent here at Fox News. And, Chad, it's great to have you back. Thanks for having me. It's been a while. It has been because I think we've been heavily focused on elections, <laughs> obviously, and of now course. the attention turns back to the whole point of the elections, which of is course. who's showing up to Capitol Hill and what do they plan to do there for the next couple of years. And already, Chad, some very interesting storylines. We discussed a few of them briefly earlier in the program. Let's just start on the Democratic side in the House, a huge leadership shakeup. Tell us about it. Well, you know, I've been told before the election and before the attack on Paul Pelosi, the uh, husband of House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, that uh, and this is by someone who is pretty close to the speaker, that they said they don't they didn't think that Pelosi was going to be back. They said, look, she's 82, uh, come back as minority leader, you know, very unlikely. She's done. Now, the thought started to recalibrate during the attack or after the attack on her husband because Nancy Pelosi does not back down. And there was some thought that she's going to stand and fight. They're not going to take me out like this. And those of us are not going to cower to political intimidation and things of that nature. But something else I've been told for a long time is that Pelosi would always leave the House whenever she left, be it in the minority or the majority, in good hands. When she felt, uh, you know, had a comfort level with everybody that was ready to step in. And it's clear with just her endorsement today of Hakeem Jeffries uh, to be the Democratic leader and Catherine Clark of Massachusetts to be the whip and also Pete Aguilar of California to be the caucus chair that she thinks the House is in good hands. So that was the transition of power here. Now, the, the, the question that I have is you're going to have Pelosi and the House Majority Leader Steny Hoyer and the whip right now, Jim Clyburn, sticking around. And you've probably heard the term helicopter parent. Uh, I wonder what this is going to be like with them being here. I, you know, I remember a scene back in 1995 where the, the Republicans were trying to pass the balanced budget amendment, an amendment to the Constitution. And Tom Daschle had just been the Democratic leader for less than two months. And Bob Dole, who was the majority leader at the time, pulled the, the bill off the floor. Uh, he didn't have the votes. And Robert Byrd, the legendary senator from West Virginia, was ready to vote and said, well, we should just vote. That's the agreement we're supposed to vote right now. And so he comes down the center aisle and blows past Tom Daschle, who's been the leader for about, you know, a hot second, and just lays into Bob Dole. And I'm like, if I and, and, and if you look at the video, you see Tom Daschle kind of standing off to the side with his hands crossed. And it's like, you know, I can't do anything about this. Uh, this is Bob Dole. I'm just a rookie up from Rochester. This is Robert Byrd, you know. And, and I don't know that we'll see a scene like that in the House of Representatives with Nancy Pelosi or, or, or Jim Clyburn or Steny Hoyer. But you can see, you know, kind of them waiting in the wings. The other thing that happens with Pelosi, Hoyer, and Clyburn sticking around is they continue to When keep you say sticking around, you mean they're going to remain in Congress, as rank just and file not in leadership. Right. That's right. That's right. They continue to keep that majority that Republicans have very narrow. And so if they were to retire or resign, then, you know, that actually helps the Republicans. Well, they're not going to do that. So they're going to continue to stick around. And, you know, there is a precedent for leaders stepping aside 
uh, and staying in the Congress. Uh, Denny Hastert, uh, the former speaker, he you know, determined in late 06 when it was clear that the Republicans were not going to be in the majority that he was going to step aside and not be a candidate for leadership, and he stayed in the Congress for about a year. Nancy Pelosi got her job, moved into the leadership post in 2002. She had been the whip before. When Dick Gephardt, who had been the longtime Democratic leader in the majority and in the minority, uh, said, I'm going to stay in Congress one more term and run for president in 04. And that's how she got the job, actually, because she was the whip and moved up one slot. What can you tell us about Hakeem Jeffries in particular and this new leadership team? Because Pelosi and Hoyer and Clyburn, they've been there just for so long. You got sort of a sense of what their dynamic was, where they were kind of on the ideological spectrum within the party. Are there some major changes here? I've seen Jeff uh, Jeffrey's voting record, which is pretty strongly progressive and liberal. He's got a footprint on social media that that's fairly eyebrow raising in some respects, but he's not off sort of in squadville either. How would you describe the new leadership ideologically? It's not just a new generation. There's some other sort of dynamics at play within that party that have to be dealt with and corralled. Well, Jeffries has definitely had his squabbles with the squad, as you might say here. He might not be quite as left-wing and as progressive as Republicans would want to portray him. Uh, James Comer, the incoming uh, chairman of the Oversight Committee, was on Fox earlier today and said he's further to the left of Nancy Pelosi. And I'm not quite sure that's true because the progressives, remember, he represents a, a district in Brooklyn. Uh, they had argued that, you know, he's too close to Wall Street, uh, you know, maybe uh, too much of an establishment Democrat. Now he's going to get the votes and everything else. You're never going to have anybody who who crosses over with all different wings of a caucus or a conference. I mean, go talk to Kevin McCarthy. We'll probably get to that in a few minutes. We will. Um, but but that that's the thing. He's not as liberal as some people might think. The problem he has is and that the Republicans will launch on is that the two Democratic leaders in the Congress, the Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer and Hakeem Jeffries in the House are both from New York City. Mm-hmm. And you used to hear this all about Nancy Pelosi. Oh, you know, she's from San Francisco, a San Francisco liberal. And there's a reason right now why the Democratic Party does not have seats that it used to have in Indiana and in the Dakotas and in, you know, some parts of Missouri. And, and, and you go throughout the, the Midwest well, here. Even New York Because it's now, a coastal right? party. Right. In upstate New York. Absolutely. You know, that's another chicken that has not come home to roost yet. You know, the Democrats have done pretty well here despite losing control of the House. But look at this. Look at how many committee chairs they had in the House. They had the Senate Majority Leader. They had Hakeem Jeffries, frankly, and they overplayed their hand in New York State with redistricting. And had they played their cards properly, they would be in the majority right now. And I remember that when John Boehner was the speaker in Ohio, he made sure that all the Ohio people and all the Ohio maps were taken care of. Pelosi did the same thing in Northern California. Um, You you saw it to a a lesser degree probably with Paul Ryan. Uh, In Nevada, you had the Harry Reid machine, which lives on, even though Harry Reid died about a year ago. Uh, That's the reason uh, the House races, uh, the Democrats uh, prevailed in those House contests there, and Catherine Cortez Masto is returning to the Senate. But in the case of New York powerful Democrats, they didn't take care of business in their home state. And that's going to be a problem for Schumer. That's going to be a problem for Jeffries. And again, they will be able to say, look, we got these two guys from Brooklyn. It's like no sleep till Brooklyn, right? This is like the, the Beastie Boys or something here. Both of the Democratic leaders are from that borough. Yep. So you got New York City leading both Democratic conferences in each respective chamber. 
And then the number two to Jeffries in the House will be from Massachusetts, Massachusetts liberals. So they're kind of staying on brand to a certain extent. They have now a minority, not as many members. So it's a little bit easier to be in the minority in some ways because you just say mm-hmm. effectively no to everything. Uh, it's a lot harder when you're in the majority. Pelosi was able to keep things more or less on the train tracks, despite some shouting here or there. Democrats tend to fall in line with leadership. She was very talented at that and counting the votes. That seems like a very tough act to follow, just in terms of logistics for Hakeem Jeffries, wouldn't you say? Yeah, but but they will be more united against the Republicans. Again, with that narrow minority, sometimes it's actually easier to stick together. Uh, because, and when you have a narrow majority, sometimes easier to stick together. Uh, if you have you know a lot more votes, people would say, oh, OK, I'm going to go over here. I'm going to go over there. So that doesn't happen as much. But that will be a test. I mean, he is tested as caucus chair. He is not tested as leader. And I tell you what, if there was anybody who could manage a minority, a majority this big, you know, or this small in the case of Kevin McCarthy, it would have been Nancy Pelosi. Uh, you know, he is really untested in this. You know, he yep. historically has not been a good vote counter. Steve Scalise, uh, also going to be the, the majority leader, we, we believe. Same deal there. Not a great vote counter. That's going to be tough for them. And a lot of it's because you have this element of the House Republican Party that simply won't play ball with leadership. Ultimately, even the squad, they'll squawk. They'll try to get concessions. They'll go out in the media. And same with the small number of moderates who want to put on a show back home. We're sending up to leadership. But when the votes are called, they have the votes. That is not what we see in Republican majorities recently over multiple speakers. Boehner, Ryan, I suspect with an even smaller margin, it'll be a ton of headaches for Kevin McCarthy. But before we get to Kevin McCarthy and the speaker in waiting, is he even that? Because we are seeing quotes from a number of Republicans saying he doesn't have the votes. They want some other unnamed sort of mysterious alternative to arise. Is that bluster or is McCarthy actually at risk of not getting to 218? It's probably a little bit of both right now. It's okay to have some bluster because you want to make your point. Um, You know, he came up 30 votes shy of needing 218, which is the magic number that he needs in January to, to become the speaker. And he probably truly isn't 30 votes shy. Some of those people, okay, they say, okay, this is the conference vote. I have some problems with him. I'll vote no, and then I'll vote for him, you know, come January. So he's probably, you know, down to about 15 to 12. But that's more than enough to tank him. And so it's hard to say. And this is where, where Guy, I always come back to, to leadership elections. I always describe it as not partisan politics, but particle politics, particle politics. Who gets into leadership? is decided at the subatomic political level. And, you know, look, let let me talk talk about Nancy Pelosi for a minute, and then I'll bring this back to Kevin McCarthy. Look at all the people over the years who were supposed to succeed her. Rahm Emanuel, Chris Van Hollen, who's now in the Senate, uh, Steve Israel, who was a congressman from New York, uh, Long Island. Uh, You had uh, Javier Becerra, uh, who was now the HHS secretary. I mean, the list goes on and on. Right, who lost to AOC. Right. Is it Joe? I mean, none of this never happened. And who winds up succeeding her? Apparently, Hakeem Jeffries. I remember when Eric Cantor was supposed to be the successor to John Boehner. I remember that Paul Ryan said that he would not run for speaker. And two weeks later, he did. And Kevin McCarthy, seven years ago, was on the precipice of becoming the speaker of the House, didn't have the votes and withdrew. So I tell you that story because Maybe there is some phenomenon here that we don't know is afoot, and somebody will come onto the scene and be able to get the votes. Uh, 
like I said, it looks like Kevin McCarthy probably would be the speaker. There's an old saying up here, you can't beat somebody with nobody. And there is nobody right now, and Kevin McCarthy has the most votes. But the other thing I always talk about, it's about the math. And so mm-hmm. maybe this just does not work out ultimately for Kevin McCarthy, which was the same thing in 2015. It's, you know, we, we have, you know, about six, seven weeks here before they have to take that vote. And there's probably going to be a lot of permutations in that. And, and I'm going to tell you a story here. Like horse, horse trading and cajoling yeah. and, you know, extraction yes. yeah. of concessions and but, all but, of but that. But and, and at the same point, he weakens himself if he, if he trades too much. And, you, and the problem he has, and this is what you alluded to a few minutes ago, is that there are a number of what I've had people around the building characterize to me, a number of political arsonists inside the Republican conference who won't vote for anything. They won't vote for spending bills. They won't vote to keep the government open. They won't vote on a resolution to honor the women's volleyball team. They just will vote no on everything. And there's a, that might be enough to torpedo Kevin McCarthy or anybody else. But, Guy. There is a precedent. In fact, there are two from the mid-19th century where they elected speakers of the House, Hal Cobb of Georgia in 1849 and Nathaniel Banks of Massachusetts in 1856 with less than a majority vote. And what happened is they finally voted in the case of Banks. They voted for two months. The House cannot do anything until you elect a speaker. And so finally what they said, okay, we're going to adopt a resolution that you can elect this speaker with less than an outright majority of the entire House first past the post wins. And so that would weaken Kevin McCarthy, but it might be a way that he could at least win or save face in that case. And there is precedent for that. And, God, there's about well, five Well, because the, Demo- the Democrats would all, in that case, vote in favor of their person. And if the Republicans didn't all vote for the Republican, you could – conceivably have a democratic speaker if the republicans decide to just you you know do the arson things and that that seems unlikely complicated absolutely you're right yeah you're right well it's a lot of drama it's a lot of drama on the house side much less drama on the senate side where it's kind of status quo on both sides of the aisle mcconnell schumer uh, maybe even a 50 50 split senate again we'll see what happens in georgia but a lot of gridlock and acrimony and drama between the parties, within the parties, all ahead in the months and years to come. And my guess is we'll be talking pretty frequently with Chad Pergram, our colleague here at Fox News, senior congressional correspondent at the network here on The Guy Benson Show. And, Chad, we always appreciate your time, your knowledge of history, your insights on some of the nuance here. Thank you. Thank you. That's Chad Pergram on The Guy Benson Show. We'll be right back. It's the happy hour. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. Happy hour here on the Guy Benson Show. Not a big soccer fan here, but every four years, if Team USA makes it, I'll watch some of the World Cup. I'll root for Team USA. I think they didn't make it last time, but they did qualify this time. This is how big of a fan I am of soccer, but I'm pretty sure Team USA is in the World Cup. It starts very soon. It's over in Qatar, which has been controversial on a bunch of different fronts. And there's an interesting curveball to bring in a metaphor from another sport, right before the World Cup is scheduled to start, the government there, the host country, it's a Muslim country, they have decided that alcohol will not be served. No beer. Budweiser was, I guess, one of the big sponsors. They had shipped a ton of beer over there for the soccer fans. Soccer fans famously enjoy their booze. And apparently they've just decided, no, we're not going to have that for sale here. 
which leaves a sponsor in the lurch, all of this product unclaimed, and a lot of sports fans and soccer fans probably very unhappy. And with booze being banned, producer Christine, I can imagine that your interest in the World Cup has gone from zero to less than nil at this point? Yes, I'm going to have to sell my tickets now. <laughs> Did you even know there was a World Cup coming? No. No. Ask me if I even know where that place is. They're having it. It's in Qatar. It's in the Middle East. Yes. You do not know where that is? I, I couldn't probably. No. If you, asked, if you put a map down and said, Dan. Would you know what region yes. generally? Yes, I would. Okay. That's good. Uh, Dan, is there like a favorite in terms of what, what country is favored to win the whole thing? Is Team USA going to be competitive? I have no idea. They'll be okay. Team USA has got some good young players. France won the last World Cup, and they are looking pretty good. England is always in contention. They always um, blow it, though. Yeah, they always find a way to blow it. But, yeah, it'll be interesting. I'm a huge, huge fan. I love this time of the, of the um, soccer world, so I will be watching a lot. All right, I'll watch like here and there when USA is playing, I suppose. But the fans in the stands, no beer, and I think we're going to see a very interesting drip, drip, drip of some very bizarre stories coming out of that country, like some fire festival vibes potentially. But hopefully the soccer, like the actual matches on the pitch, are fun. Hopefully Team USA does well, and we can drink as much beer as we want here back home watching on TV from a distance. The happy hour on The Guy Benson Show continues right after this. Talking about the issues you care about, Guy Benson. It is the happy hour here on The Guy Benson Show. Very glad to have you here with us. Earlier in today's program, we caught up with Kimberly Strassel of the Wall Street Journal, a columnist there, also a Fox News contributor. We asked her about her big analysis takeaways from the midterm elections, her postmortem, if you will. Here's part of that conversation with Kimberly Strassel. I just wonder how you feel about President Trump's uh, announcement on Tuesday and if that plays into your overall analysis of the midterms that we just got finished with. And in fact, there are still some races uncalled. Here we are, what, a Friday after the Friday following the election. And there are still some races uncalled, which I think is an indictment of the system in some of these states in terms of the way that they count. But also it underscores that we're still processing what just happened. And to be already looking ahead to 2024 is just, I'm, I'm just not terribly uh, sort of, I'm not zoned in on that. I'm sort of zoned out on that still. Yeah, you know what really struck me about the announcement, Guy, is that forget that I am exhausted and not interested in this. Nobody else seemed to be either. Um, and that was really notable to me. You know, Donald Trump is not the first former president to make another run at the White House. Um, but what's been really notable, if you look through history at those guys, because of their their prior positions as president of the United States and of the heads of their party, when they began those runs, they began them with the support of a huge chunk 
of their party infrastructure, you know, the, the important and elected officials and important fundraisers. And, you know, it, they, they kind of had a lot of momentum. You look down there at Mar-a-Lago on Tuesday, there was really almost no elected officials other than Madison Cawthorn. Um, even Ivanka Trump doesn't think this is a good idea and is not going to be taking part in it. Uh, yeah, she, she announced few- she would not be involved in this in this campaign. At all, or in politics, not just that, but were he to be reluctant, she's not going to be involved in politics going forward. You know, you would expect a president, uh, people who had worked in the past for a president who did this, uh, to have that loyalty. Uh, In fact, there was really nobody from Trump's cabinet or former White House or administration there other than like a handful of people. A lot of the folks that did watch it were dismissive of it online. Uh, The fundraisers are all bailing, the mega donors. Uh, And, you know, this, I think, really to me sums up that everybody is still absorbing this, as you said. But to me, the takeaway lesson, the thing that fundamentally shifted in the days following last Tuesday was Republicans woke up and realized just how big a liability Donald Trump potentially is for the Republican Party, and that this whole belief that he's the guy that decides who wins elections is not the case because he actually managed to lose a bunch of elections for people this time, and that they may need to now start looking for a different future. My full interview with Kim Strassel of The Wall Street Journal and Fox News, available on our podcast, which is free and on demand every single day, including bonus Benson on the weekends. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. When we come back, it's the home stretch. Producer Christine, like millions of Americans, very upset, very agitated this week over a struggle to get concert tickets. This is a huge story. Christine cares about it. I really don't, but I guess we'll talk about it. How's that for a tease when we come back? For the full interview and more, go to GuyBensonShow.com. Home stretch on this Friday. Almost to the weekend together here on The Guy Benson Show. GuyBensonShow.com, free podcast every day. Bonus Benson on the weekends. If you're listening on the broadcast, our bumper song right there was one of the new big hits from Taylor Swift off of her new album. She's going on tour to perform all over the country, probably all over the world, I would imagine. The new stuff, the old stuff, everything in between. She's got a big fan base. I saw that the new album was like one of the most heavily streamed albums of all time, and her songs were just dominating the charts up and down. So she's had a very successful rollout here. Less successful are people's ability to get their hands on tickets to these concerts, where on the secondary market, it's just insanely expensive, and on the primary market, it's Really, really, really hard to get tickets. And in many cases, just impossible. You get on a wait list. Most people just sit on that wait list. Apparently the system sort of crashed, and there's a big now feud with Ticketmaster. It seems like one thing Taylor Swift does a lot of is feuding. And all of her legions of fans take her side and just, like, get involved in these feuds with various people like her exes and other pop stars that are seen as rivals. Now I guess Ticketmaster is in the crosshairs, the fury of Swift World. 
because of whatever's happened here. I've just seen a bunch of people whining on social media about how hard it is to get tickets. And look, I mean, she's going to play a bunch of shows in front of huge stadiums, but if there are more people who want to go, clearly that's the case, a lot more people who want to go than seats available, like that's a supply and demand issue. And I guess what's playing out has been a little bit messy and quite frustrating to a lot of folks. I have no interest in this. I've noted people's expressions of frustration. I've noticed that they are posting about how they're having a hard time and what processes they're going through to try to somehow get a ticket and so on and so forth. And I, I wish them well, hoping for the best. I'm hoping that all the people who love her can go see her. doesn't look like that's going to be the case. And the sagas continue. Someone who is part of these masses of people who are trying to get tickets and cannot. Now, one person who is among the masses of people trying to get tickets and who cannot, stuck in this ordeal, would be our very own producer, Christine, which... I guess surprised me a little bit. I, I don't really recall that she was a Swifty, as they call themselves. I know she's much more of a Nickelback kind of gal. So this is, I don't know if it's off-brand. It's a little bit on-brand, too, because it's kind of a little bit basic. Not to be offensive. I'm not saying that in a judgmental way. But, Christine, are you a big Swift fan, or what's going on here? I I calmly I'm going to say something to you mm-hmm. before I bring up the Taylor Swift concert. I don't understand how you can call me basic when you went to a Carly Ray Jepsen concert. Like you don't have what's that, the saying? A foot to stand on. Sneaker, shoe. I think it's a leg to stand on. Yeah, but that too. Except the thing is Carly Ray Jepsen isn't basic. Like Basic is something that has mass, broad, sort of predictable appeal. Whereas Carly Rae, it's more of a niche fan base for people with true taste in pop music is sort of how I would describe it. Whereas Taylor Swift is like, okay, yeah, here we go. You and a gazillion other people. So that's why it's kind of basic. Like you're just standing in line for hours and hours and hours trying to get tickets, clutching your pumpkin spice latte in your Live, Laugh, Love sweater, right? Like that's kind of the vibe I'm picturing here. So tell us about your efforts to get tickets and have they been successful yet? Well, I just want to let you know um, I'm off the pumpkin spice latte. It's now gingerbread spice lattes. So you can put that yes. there. Well, case in point. I mean, that's that has further solidified – uh, my point, but but please, on the ticket front, which yes. is the topic here, Sorry, uh, uh, tell us about this. Bobby, we tried. We had you know those emails because of our credit card that we can get in line first before they went to the public, and no bueno. Like, the whole system went down. Then when Bobby tried again, I think he waited for like two hours, and I don't even want to tell you. We were ready to spend money because this is Megan, besides Olivia Rodrigo, this is Megan's favorite singer. She loves T-Swift. She's made us Swifties because that's all we listen to, especially the new album. It is so, so good. Is it? Yes. Yes. Uh, it, okay. It is. Um, but no, to no avail. So I I really, really wanted to get these tickets. 
And that was going to be the big present for mommy and daddy for Christmas. We were going to, like, wrap it and put it in a box and everything. And nope. Thanks a lot, Taylor Swift. I'm just looking right now on StubHub Mm -hmm. at some of the tickets that are or are not available. So I guess in March, Taylor Swift will be in Vegas. I just picked a random concert. And way up in the sixth row of the 400 level in the nosebleed seats, the tickets start at like 540 bucks a pop. And then if I go like way closer down to the stage, I mean, it is a grand, two grand, in some cases, $3,000 per ticket. That's on StubHub. I'm I'm on there too. We were looking and just to because you know we're in the New York, New Jersey area, so it's MetLife Stadium in New Jersey, mm-hmm. and even to be in the 300s, I think it's like I'm looking 900, 950 a ticket. It's just wow. it's just we can't we can't do that. There has to be limits. That is extremely extremely expensive. All right, so when she comes to this neck of the woods. Let's just look at Philly. I'm going to click on a Friday night in Philadelphia. Two tickets. If I want to sit right up close, yeah, it's like 2700 Here's one, $3,800 each. Then you get into like the first deck, it's close to $2,000. Then all the way in the upper deck, $898 each. I mean, this is, this is really, really crazy what people are spending. You know, I was thinking about this. What would it take for me to get to a Taylor Swift concert? If someone offered me, you might recall Lady Gaga came over the summer to D.C. I like her music. She's got a lot of hits. And I, I think I probably like her music a little bit more than Taylor Swift. But someone offered me a suite, like to come to a suite with some other friends, with some free drinks, and see Lady Gaga. And I said yes. That was definitely an easy yes for me. I'm not sure how much money I would have spent out of my pocket to go see Lady Gaga. With Taylor Swift, if I were offered the same situation, like free tickets in a suite, free booze, I would say yes. But I'm not even sure, Christine, if I were offered completely free nosebleed seats, if I would accept them. Well, I just don't know if I really want it that badly. I don't think you will be. Um, this is a very, very hot commodity. Well, it's possible. But, I mean, you know, I have connections. People offer me things, Christine. Maybe what I should do is if I get offered free Taylor Swift tickets, I should accept them and then sell them at a great profit to myself to you. What? Excuse me, Uncle Guy, wouldn't you want to give the gift of Taylor Swift to little Megan? I don't think I've ever met Megan. Or maybe I did for like half a second once. And it really, this comes down to how much do you love your own child, right? I mean, if, if I'm giving you an opportunity to have these tickets for her, hypothetically, for a certain price, I mean, that's on you to make a decision. How much really do you love her? And I would hate to send a little message to Megan about what mommy had an opportunity to do and then didn't. All right, maybe I would just send Quiet Wyatt directly to talk to her, to tell her the truth about Santa, and then to also tell her about this. We could just you know, rip off the Band-Aid all at once. I mean, these are tough choices and decisions that you have to make. You guys are just going to, like, ruin her spirit. She's the happiest little girl ever. <laughs> and here comes Wyatt. Mm-hmm. Sit down, Megan. Got well, some stories you, to tell you. You keep us posted on whether you're able to end up 
securing tickets for Taylor Swift. I know there's a ton of competition out there. So many people trying to get them. All sorts of complaints. The Ticketmaster, whatever system they had, I guess, has just melted down. She's mad. Everyone's mad. And I am just blissfully uncaring about the situation. Uh, and, you know, good luck to all the Swifties out there. The new album was sort of fine as background music. Um, but I don't really think any of them are all that catchy. Although the song that we bumped in with isn't bad. And it actually reminds me a little bit of producer Christine. Like, it's you. Hi. You're the problem. It's you. Are you kidding? Only partially. (laughs) Now, since we invoked Quiet Wyatt's name a moment ago, I don't know what we're about to talk about. But here on the rundown, I see a question written by Christine. Why is YY disappointed in Cookie again? Question mark. And I have no idea what this even references because you guys wouldn't tell me earlier. Wyatt. Look, I understand. Setting aside all the generalized disappointment in Christine, what specifically are you talking about today? Well, just starting out, I just need to clarify. I will not be participating in the blackmail over Santa and the, you know, whole Taylor Swift thing. I'm not not going to There's no blackmail. There's no blackmail. It's just more of Christine having to make tough choices <laughs> about her daughter, her love for her daughter. Her daughter's love for Taylor Swift, these tickets that I don't have but hypothetically would sell to her at quite a premium. I'd probably find whatever the least expensive seats were at the venue that day and then hit like $1 lower, and that would be my deal. It would actually be a real favor I'd be doing for Christine, and so she'd have to think about it. But, Wyatt, you're disappointed in Christine for a different reason. What has Cookie done now? Well, she told me that she does not like pot pie, which to me is just like – one of the best things ever, especially in winter. Like to me, that is just like a quintessential winter food that you have. And she told me today that, oh, I do not, I, I hate pot pie, just like she hates French onion soup. And I don't know how to react to this. Hmm. That's a weird one to really hate. Christine, do you hate shepherd's pie too? Do you just not like savory pies? Um, I don't hate shepherd's pie as much as I absolutely detest um pot pie when i was i was telling why because he mentioned that he had made a homemade pot pie and i said oh my gosh i'm like honestly i'm getting like like just sick thinking about it just as much as i hate french onion soup i know um when my when i was little the rule was you ate there's no options like we give kids now. Like whatever my mom cooked, you ate. And if you didn't want that, you had one other choice of a non-sugary cereal. Like you couldn't have, you know, Fruit Loops or something. You you could have Cheerios, plain, or whatever she had in there. And that was it. You had two options. So when I would see the pot pies coming out, I would start crying. I Seriously, cry. Because she was never, by the way, making French onion soup. I didn't have to worry about that. But there is something in pot pie that I oh I can't even like think about it. It's like that gelatinous. I don't know. There's like hmm. goo in there, hmm. and I I cannot stand it. Huh. Well, why it, it makes apparently homemade pot pies, which I'm sure are delicious. He puts a lot of effort into it. And why it? I have a really good idea for the Christmas party that you guys are all coming to, and Christine's coming down for. I think you should make a pot pie 
as a secret surprise gift for Christine and have it wrapped. We'll put it under the tree, and then we'll have her open it in front of everyone, and we'll see how she reacts. I'm sure it'll be calm and completely normal because that's the way we roll here. That's a strange one to really hate. Huh. I'll take that under advisement. Another layer of the cookie onion comes off, and I don't know what to make of it. I'll have the weekend to think about it. Back here on Monday for more of The Guy Benson Show. Enjoy your pre-Thanksgiving weekend. We will talk to you then. Have a great night. The Fox News Rundown, a contrast of perspectives you won't hear anywhere else. Your daily dose of news twice a day. Featuring insight from top newsmakers, reporters, and Fox News contributors. Listen and subscribe now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.